Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Although Season 2 was completed in February, I wanted to bring you this very special edition podcast on the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 and the changes to the outbreak period. Please be advised that this podcast was originally recorded as a webinar and video for our clients. I have edited this for our audio podcast for our Benefits Executive Roundtable audience. I have with me today Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office. She and I will be jointly bringing you some information that's very important on the American Rescue Plan Act, as well as the outbreak period updates as of April 2021. Welcome, Marilyn, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Dorothy. It's a pleasure being with you here today. And I agree with you that this is a very important topic to all employers, um, particularly with regard to the American Rescue Plan Act and how the COBRA subsidies will affect them. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, covering a lot of information in a short amount of time, okay? Uh, We'll try to keep this as close to an hour as possible. We may run a few minutes over, but uh, I said hold 90 minutes just in case, but we're hoping to get this done in the 60 to 70 minute time frame. So in order to do that, we have to move very, very rapidly. So we're going to be talking about the outbreak period. I'm going to have Marilyn take the lead on that, uh, talk about the Disaster Relief Notice 2021-01, which uh, I think most of you know a lot about because I've already sent out some emails and some an article, an updated article and so forth on that. Uh, then we'll get into the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which we're going to be calling ARPA. We'll uh, talk a little bit about the overview and some of the spending examples. This is a huge, 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 huge bill, as you'll see, with a lot of funding in it, including mental health, substance abuse, behavioral health funding, uh, and then I'm going to turn it over to, again, back to Marilyn, and she's going to be talking about the COBRA premium assistance uh, because she's the attorney, and I know she's the one you want to hear from. (laughs) So she'll be doing that part, and then I will turn back over to me. I will be handling the marketplace advanced premium tax credit increases, uh, the small business tax credit, PPP modifications, some support for restaurants, uh, unemployment assistance, and then we're going to turn it back over to Marilyn to talk about the details on the dependent FSAs, tax credits for paid sick leave and paid family leave, um, COVID leaves, and the new California SB95, which is pretty new. And I want to make sure that you get all the information uh, straight from Marilyn on that. So we're going to start, as I said, with the time frame extensions. I'm going to turn this over to Marilyn, and she is going to be taking the lead. As I said, I will just be the color commentator on this portion. If you want to communicate with us, ask questions. Marilyn will be monitoring the chat because I can't because I'm controlling the slides um, so she will be monitoring the chat and telling me if there are questions for me and so forth and uh, so I'll go ahead uh, if you have questions like I said put them in the chat don't put them in the Q&A put them in the chat because that's what we're monitoring all right so I'll go ahead and turn this over to Marilyn Marilyn hi Dorothy thank you I'm sorry I was reading one of the questions in the chats tried because <laughs> we have already got a question and I haven't even started talking yet but it's a good question um, so I'll try to remember to get back to that one. So let's talk about time frame extensions. Amongst all the other, the four major pieces of legislation and all the other guidance that was issued last year to contend with the COVID-19 pandemic, the Departments of Labor and Treasury, as you all know, issued a notice granting relief to participants 
um, with regard to certain deadlines that they normally have to comply with, uh, with respect to the administration of their employee benefit plans. And these, um, this relief they granted applies to group health, which would include a health FSA if you offer one or a health reimbursement arrangement if you offer one, disability and other welfare benefit plans. And basically what it does is it gives participants extra time. The deadlines that normally apply to the administration of an employee benefit plan um, don't start running during this special time frame that they have created called the outbreak period. So how long does the outbreak period last? It started when the president declared a national emergency, which was effective on March 1, 2020. So um, what they did was they created what they call an outbreak period, which runs from the date that the president's national emergency began, March 1, 2020, and runs until 60 days after the end of the president's national emergency. But all of us were kind of, no, I don't think most of us were thinking or hoping or believing that the, out, that the pandemic would last over a year. Because built into the notice that the um, government agencies gave us was a note that the outbreak period would not last more than one year. There's an existing uh, limitation in both ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code that says that government agencies can grant you some relief, but they can't go beyond one year. So as February came around, people were saying, well, what does this all mean? We've now been in this almost a year. What's the Department of Labor going to do? How are they going to apply this one-year limitation? Are they going to give us extra time, et cetera? So finally, uh, just a few days before the end of February and the one-year mark was due to expire, they issued um, Disaster Relief Notice 2021-01 and explained how the one-year period was going to apply. Now, in addition to these uh, rules that they issued, creating this outbreak period for participants, at the same time last year, they also released uh, a disaster release notice 2020-01 that gave plans as opposed to participants, but plans a little extra time to meet some of their compliance deadlines. So if you had to get a particular document out by a certain deadline, they were going to give plans a little bit of leeway under the circumstances to um, meet those deadlines. So it wasn't all deadlines that they gave participants uh, an extension of time to deal with. It was only these eight categories. I say only, but there's significant categories. So it was a, to request a HIPAA special enrollment period, for example. So if you had a baby, uh, the deadline to um, add the baby to the plan is normally 30 days. Uh, that deadline was suspended or disregarded or told, basically the clock didn't start running on it during the course of the outbreak period, starting on March 1 and ending 60 days after the end of the national emergency with that one year limitation in mind. So that applied to special enrollment periods. It applied to the time period that people have to elect COBRA. So if you sent out a COBRA election notice to an employee and they didn't elect, normally at the end of 60 days, you could say too late, you can't elect now. Now that 60-day clock wasn't running, it, it, um, it was paused. Um, same thing for making COBRA payments, either the initial payment or the monthly payments. Uh, and same thing, category five, with regard to the date to file a benefit claim. So that's true of your major medical, dental, vision, as well as health FSAs and HRAs, employees had additional time to submit their benefit claims. So this could affect um, major medical plans, particularly if you're self-funded, if you're 
because you don't know what the runout is going to be. I think one of the biggest administrative challenges with this might be with regard to health FSAs, because you don't know what amounts people might have forfeited um, at the end of the year, what amounts they might have carried over, because uh, theoretically they could be sitting on some old claims and they still have more time to submit them. So along came, as I said, uh, some new guidance from the Department of Labor as to how to deal with this outside one year limit. And they, this came in what they call Disaster Relief Notice 2021-01, which Dorothy has communicated to you about. And so what they said basically is that timeframes will be calculated on an individual basis. Each deadline for each individual will have its own clock running. And none of these deadlines will run more than one year. Um, once the deadline runs, then any time the person has to take action, like 30 days or 60 days, will start to run from that point in time. And they gave us some examples in the uh, disaster relief notice. So if a qualified beneficiary would have been required to make a COBRA election by March 1, 2020, they now have um, a delay until February 28th, 2021. Uh, another example they gave us, if a qualified beneficiary would have been required to make a COBRA election by March 1, 2021, that requirement was delayed until March 1, 2022, unless the president declares an end to the national emergency before then. By the way, they also issued guidance, a separate document that noted that they expect the president's national emergency to stay in effect throughout all of 2021 but if they do change their minds and intend to end it early, they'll give us 60 days notice, which is a good thing. Um, and then an example with regard to um, the uh, extra time given to plans, what does that mean for the plan as opposed to the participant? Let's say the plan was supposed to have provided a notice by March 1, 2020. Now the fiduciary for the plan must provide it by March 1, 2021. Now, looking at those examples, which we I abbreviated, but we pulled directly from the disaster relief notice, you'll note that the very first one ran on February 28, 2021. So that ran a month ago. So does that mean that employers can suddenly say, ah, you missed the deadline, it's over, um, and now we don't have to, to uh, you know, offer you that special enrollment period or we can cut off your COBRA because you haven't paid your premiums? Well, not exactly, because after explaining how that one year outside limit works, they then went on to provide us with more explanation. And they explained in the guidance that a guiding principle, and this is in quotation marks, uh, for administering employee benefit plans is to act reasonably, prudently, and in the interest of the workers and their families. This means that planned fiduciaries should make reasonable accommodations to prevent the loss or undue delay in the payment of benefits. And then they go on to say that the plan administrator should consider affirmatively sending a notice regarding the end of the relief period. And um, so that so in my example where um, uh, that taken from the guidance where someone's deadline ended um, February 28th and uh, the DOL didn't issue this disaster relief notice until about a week before that, if that long, um, what the recommendation is, don't just cut off their benefits at that point, but instead um, give them some leeway um, and perhaps affirmatively send a notice to them saying, hey, your deadline's about to run. If you want that COBRA coverage, send in your check. If you want to elect COBRA coverage, send in your election. If you want to make that special enrollment, send us your election form, that kind of thing. They similarly also said that if you'd sent out um, 
plan disclosures during the pandemic that you might have to reissue or amend the disclosures if they fail to provide accurate information regarding the time in which participants and beneficiaries were required to act. So for example, if you send out a COBRA election notice explaining the timeframe extensions, but maybe didn't explain how this outside one year limit worked because no one knew until they issued the disaster relief notice, it might be appropriate to update that notice um, to explain to people how, it's, how, it's, uh, uh, how it all works and how much time specifically they have to cut that check or send in that election form. Now, my action items, um, obviously, you need to coordinate this with your COBRA TPA or any other TPA that, that's providing services to you that might be affected, such as the person that runs the, your health FSA or your self-funded health plan. Update your notices, particularly your COBRA election forms. The reason I've got that underlined is because when we get down to talking about the COBRA subsidies, you'll notice I'm going to talk about new notices that have to go out as a result of the COBRA subsidies under ARPA. Um, so while you're updating your COBRA notices for that purpose, this would be a time to also update your notices for the timeframe extension purposes. So with that in mind, Dorothy, I'm going to move the next discussion topic to you. Um, oh, I, let's see, I did get a question. Does the one year apply only to COBRA or to other enrollment changes like the spouse loses coverage? Do they get a year to enroll? It applies to those eight categories. So it applies to COBRA election and only those eight categories, all other deadlines under the plan would continue to apply. So with regard to your question, it would apply to COBRA elections and you'll see how this is affected by the COBRA subsidies. I've got some examples on this. So it affects COBRA elections, COBRA premiums, also special enrollment, um, other enrollment changes, like if the spouse loses coverage, that would be, uh, that was one of the questions, that would be a special enrollment opportunity. That's not a special enrollment, right? It's a qualifying event. So that would be subject to existing rules that wouldn't be subject to the one year. So thank you for that question. Dorothy. That is a good question. I just kind of wanted to wrap up this uh, outbreak period, uh, these changes, by just kind of restating some of the things and make sure you're familiar with some of the terms that people are talking when they're, when they're discussing the outbreak period. Uh, and the most important thing is to keep in mind that these deadlines uh, are extended uh, on an individual by individual basis. So that's the most important thing that I wanted to make sure that just to kind of hit on again before we end this portion. This tolling period again ends the earlier of one year from the date of the deadline would have been running for that individual or 60 days from the end of the national emergency as Marilyn said. So I just wanted to kind of restate this because I think the most important thing sometimes you have to you know restate two or three times and everybody has their own tolling period. I wanted to make sure that you were aware of that terminology tolling period because that's something that you'll be hearing throughout the marketplace. You may not have heard that that uh, term before. So I just kind of wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page with that. And keep in mind, the extension uh, begins on the date that the clock would have started uh, for a particular deadline on a rolling basis. And that's what Marilyn was, was talking about. So I just kind of wanted to throw that in as an additional commentary. Mar Marilyn, is there anything else you wanted to add on the tolling period? And those No, topics? that's a really good summation. And I would just say, I if any of you do... Um, track these things internally, it might be either you're going to have to update your software systems or get an Excel spreadsheet um, so that you can, because John's one, one year maximum is going to run on one based on his special enrollment right. event or based on his election. Susie's is going to be another. Joe is going to be another. George is going to be another. So it's going to be a lot of tracking. And one of the concerns when this uh, guidance came out is whether or not TPAs, for example, were set up to, um, 
to deal with this. And they may very well be, but if you're going to do it internally, um, you know, make sure you've got a good system in place that you can run the run the numbers. Marilyn, just so that you know, we have uh, a few people. I think we have five or six people from third-party administrators on this webinar. So uh, <laughs> I think they wanted to hear from you as well. And so we, we, we feel your pain. We know what you guys are going through. Um, this is going to require some, get get your IT folks involved because it's going to require some, um, some software changes potentially unless you're doing it manually. And I don't know how you're going to be able to handle the volume if you do it manually. So we can address this later as we talk about the COBRA subsidies as well. So uh, oh, one last point, can I add? Sure. Uh, I did get a question, not on this webinar, another webinar. Someone thought that the um, these time frame extensions apply to DCAPs. They don't. The health FSA, yes, but not DCAPs. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that as we go through. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit. I'm going to get into more of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. I'm sure you've been hearing all about this. The most important thing about this to remember is that this is a 1.9 trillion with a T. 1.9 trillion, almost $2 trillion relief package. This is huge, 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 huge. Um, although the, the bill itself isn't that really that long and that complicated um, so far, <laughs> the rules will be added and we'll make that a lot more complicated as time goes on. Um, it's, it's what it covers is just, it's, it's amazing to me how many things they put in here. I mean, this is the widest uh, type of relief package I've seen, I think, ever. Maryland may have some recollection of some, but as far as the types of things that it covers, it's just huge. Obviously, All I'll add there, Dorothy, is the CAA had a provision regarding UFOs, and this yeah, one doesn't. That's so true. I think the CAA wins the UFO category. Yeah, you're probably right about that, for sure. Um, but this obviously extends, we all heard on the news, that it extends the unemployment insurance benefits. We all know about that. It provides the $1,400 stimulus payments to qualifying Americans. Uh, and there are several Several important health policy changes that are in there. So I want to make sure that you're all aware of this. And I'm going to go through these very rapidly because I want to spend a lot of time on, on the other things. I want to give more, Marilyn more time on the COBRA subsidies and so forth. And we want to spend some time on the marketplace changes and so forth. But providing for vaccine distribution and testing uh, to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, making policy adjustments to the Medicaid program, facilitates health insurance coverage and provides more money for health care providers. And that's big. Um, that's huge, in fact, money-wise and everything else. And for what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and makes two technical Medicare payment changes. Um, and the public health funding, and this, again, keep in mind, look at these dollar amounts, okay? Under public health funding, obviously COVID-19 vaccination, distribution, testing, and contact tracing was the number one priority. And they also provided for a lot of support for healthcare workforce um, and public health initiatives. They directed $7.5 billion to Centers for Disease Control uh, and Prevention to pay for and prepare for, promote and distribute and administer, monitor and track COVID-19 vaccinations. And what I'm doing is I'm giving you the code sections of each of these because if there are certain of these items as we go through here that really you know spark your interest it will be a lot easier for you to ask you know us questions later on and to do your own research because some of this may apply directly to your organization um, you can literally go on and google <laughs> you know the the uh, American Rescue Plan Act and the the section number and that should pull right up to that section number and that should help you out so you're not having to go through a zillion different pages of, uh, of information so 7.5 uh, billion for that 7.66 billion to state local and territorial public health departments to hire staff and procure equipment technology and other supplies and support for public health efforts 100 million for medical uh, reserve corps 800 million for national health service corps 200 million for nursing um, 330 330 million for teaching health centers that operate um, graduate medical education, 
uh, allocates $47.8 billion um, for implementation on evidence-based national COVID-19 testing strategies. Uh, and that includes HHS funding for COVID-19 testing, contact tracing, mitigation activities, and so forth. And again, there's the code section and directs $1.75 billion to, you know, other areas as well and surveillance activities and so forth. Um, they also provide for a lot of rural grant, uh, rural development grants and rural health care provisions. And um, you might have heard somewhere in the news they talked about this as Provider Relief Lookalike Fund for Rural Providers. That's what I'm hearing in the news, so I wanted to put that in so you can put those two together. $500 million for emergency development grants for rural health care, and that goes through September 30th of 2023. Vaccine distribution, medical supplies, reimbursement for revenue loss, telehealth investments, a lot of telehealth investments, COVID and other testing, and that's again under Section 1002. Um, funding for Department of Labor Worker Protection Activities, $5 million there and OSHA enforcement high-risk uh, facilities. And that's particular for things like meat plants, agricultural, correctional facilities, people that are higher at risk. Um, and more funding for things like a billion dollars for vaccine confidence activities. That includes ads and so forth, TV advertising and everything else. $6.05 for supply chain for COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, medical supplies. $500 million for COVID-19, again, for device activities at the FDA. Uh, 7.6 billion for public health workforce activities and so forth. This keep, con continues on and on and on. Funding for mental health and substance abuse disorders under the public safety and first responders, that portion of the act. Um, again, block grants, a lot of them. 1.5 billion for community health services, 1.5 billion for prevention and treatment of substance abuse, 80 million for mental health and substance uh, abuse disorder training for healthcare professionals, paraprofessionals and public safety officers, 20 million for education awareness for campaigns and encouraging health wor healthy working conditions, uh, 40 million for grants for healthcare providers to promote mental health among their health professional workforce. Uh, 30 million for you know funding for local substance abuse and disorder services. Uh, behavioral health, and I know I have some clients in behavioral health, so I wanted to make sure that I address this for you. Um, this is going to be handled at the local level. So you, what you want to do is check with your regional centers and your counties. That's what I'm reading. Is there those uh, county offices should be uh, able to direct you uh, on these types of things? But there's 30 million dollars for community-based funding for local behavioral health needs. Um, and that includes grants to state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, tribal organizations, nonprofit community organizations, and primary and behavioral health organizations to address community behavioral needs that were worsened by COVID-19. And that includes some of my clients. So I wanted to make sure you guys were aware that there is relief in, as part of this legislation. Um, so again, look to your county offices uh, for information on, on this because I don't have all the, they probably don't have all the information yet either, again, because we're going off of, you know, the bill text right now we don't really have a lot of uh, anything beyond that so I'm sure they'll be getting more information as time goes on. Grants were funded to be used for promoting healthcare coordination uh, amongst all these different individuals and so forth. It has a lot of money applying towards working with telehealth and supporting and enhancing telehealth services for mental and behavioral health uh, preventive and crisis intervention services and then there's 10 million for National Child Traumatic Stress Network and 30 million for an emergency supplies medical supplies enhancements. There are some other provisions here in general, sunset on the limits of maximum rebates for single source drugs. 
innovators for multiple source drugs, and, and you'll be hearing more about this, I'm sure, from the TPAs and the carriers, temporary and enhanced EMAP for home and community-based services, and disproportionate share hospital allotment technical fixes that they put in there. But this doesn't, there's more to it than this. I'm just kind of hitting on some of the highlights. I'm going to turn this over now because I want to get back to uh, Marilyn because I really need her to spend a lot of time with you on the COBRA premium assistance. So Marilyn, would you like to take over? Absolutely. Um, so this is, I, I think, uh, the provision that I'm getting the most calls on um, and is, is generating a lot of interest, and that is the COBRA premium um, assistance provisions. So this first slide is a high-level overview. What is this all about? Under ARPA, uh, assistance eligible individuals, or AEIs, you've got a new acronym to memorize. The other day on a presentation, I started to call them um, uh, applicable large employers, <laughs> assistance-eligible individuals, they're entitled to free COBRA continuation coverage, including the 2% administration fee, for up to six months. The subsidy begins on April 1 and ends on September 30th, 2021. Uh, we do know that there will be more guidance coming out from the powers that be, primarily the Department of Labor and Treasury, but also the Department of Health and Human Services. Among other things, Labor has to issue the model forms we're going to be talking about, but they've also been instructed to issue um, guidance with regard to um, other uh, terms and conditions of the statute. Because as Dorothy said, all we have is, is the statutory language right now. We know what Congress wants to accomplish, but we need more details on the, the how we get there. Interestingly, for those of you who have been around for a little while, um, you will start to recognize um, that some of ARPA's COBRA subsidy provisions will sound very familiar uh, or very similar to the COBRA subsidy provisions that were included the, in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, ARA. So we've got ARA and ARPA. So for those of you who may recall, back when President Obama first took office, um, we had an economic situation going on and they issued, the Congress passed ARA and amongst the other provisions in ARA, a stimulus bill, was a COBRA subsidy provision. I might want now, to just, I, I want to add just one thing. ARA is also the piece of legislation that created high tech under HIPAA. Just just wanted to throw that out. You guys probably remember that time frame because of that. So anyway, sorry, Marilyn, go ahead. Oh, no, that's right. It did. It, it, it actually, it was also another very comprehensive bill. Um, and it did, it did include high tech. It also included a COBRA subsidy. The subsidy wasn't identical to the one we're dealing with now. For example, it was only a partial COBRA subsidy. It wasn't 100% free COBRA. It didn't apply to reductions in hours, just terminations. But what is kind of helpful about this for those of you who, like me, are electronic pack rats is I still had all my era materials saved on my hard drive. And the reason that's kind of helpful at this point, while we're still waiting for guidance to come out from the IRS and the DOL on how to move forward, is that they issued quite a bit of guidance back in the old ARA days. And some of that, um, some of the language in ARPA is identical to some of the language in ARA. So I've been using that as I try, as I give these presentations to try to get a sense of where the IRS might go once again this time around, if they intend to be consistent with what they did last time around. I'm also hoping that might speed up the regulatory process because to some degree they can cut and paste. Uh, I see we've got a question about who pays for the free COBRA, uh, the employer or the government. There's, uh, it depends. Um, ultimately, whoever has to pay 
uh, will be reimbursed by the government. And I'll talk to you about how that structure works. So you will hear me refer to ARA as we go through this presentation. Okay, so who is eligible for the COBRA subsidy? The person who becomes eligible for continuation coverage due to either an involuntary termination of employment other than for gross misconduct or a reduction in hours that results in the loss of coverage. So a couple of things to emphasize there. It must be an involuntary termination. If someone uh, resigns, if someone quits, if someone walks off the job, that's voluntary, that's not involuntary, and that doesn't make them eligible for the subsidy. Interestingly, the reduction in hours component doesn't seem to require that the reduction in hours be involuntary. That's the way I read the statute. That seems to be the way most people are interpreting it. So a voluntary reduction in hours, it would appear um, absent uh, a change in uh, impressions from the guidance we might get, it would appear that a voluntary reduction in hours as well as an involuntary reduction in hours could um, qualify someone for the COBRA subsidy. The involuntary termination of employment does not have to be due to um, COVID-19. So if the employer uh, involuntarily terminated someone because they have chronic absenteeism or a failure to perform, or uh, they were having layoffs for reasons completely unrelated to COVID-19, all of those circumstances um, would enable someone to qualify for the subsidy. One of the things that happened at the time that they issued the guidance under ERA is that they did walk us through several examples because um, employers had questions in some circumstances about what's voluntary versus involuntary because that same involuntary termination of language language was uh, existed in ARA. So let's say, for example, your employer says to you, "Well, uh, we're going to we're going to terminate you, but um, we'll let you we'll let you quit um, um, in lieu of a, a termination if that would make you feel better." In that circumstance, the IRS said, well, that was probably an involuntary termination and that person would be entitled to the subsidy. So we're looking at things like that. I've got a question here. Does it only apply to AEIs? Two people are terminated due to COVID slowdown. Slow One makes 200,000 per year. The other makes uh, 25,000 per year. Are they both eligible for the subsidy? Yes. Um, it, if you are an AEI, you are eligible for the subsidy. There is no income uh, qualification issue here. So if someone is highly paid or if they're not so highly paid, both would be eligible for the subsidy. Um, so here's some examples. AEIs could include someone who experiences a qualifying event during the subsidy period. By that, I mean someone, um, the subsidy starts on April 1 and ends on September 30th. So someone who is terminated effective uh, uh, the end of April and gets a COBRA um, election form effective uh, for their qualifying event effective May 1 would be entitled to the subsidy for May through September 30th, all other facts and circumstances indicating they are eligible. Um, also, someone, and, and this has been very interesting to employers, individuals who experienced a qualifying event prior to April 1 who are currently on COBRA and who have not exhausted their maximum 18 months of COBRA continuation coverage. So if you uh, terminated someone last March, if you terminated someone last November, if you terminated someone over a year ago and they're still on COBRA and they haven't exhausted their 18 months, assuming they still qualify as an AEI, they are eligible for the subsidy. So they would remain on COBRA, 
but for the next six months, that COBRA coverage will be paid for. In addition, individuals who experienced a qualifying event prior to April 1 and who did not elect COBRA or who did elect COBRA and then let that COBRA coverage lapse will be given a new opportunity to enroll in COBRA and get their COBRA coverage subsidized. This is called an extended election period. Those of us in the industry are calling it another bite at the apple. And I'm gonna be talking about that in a little while. But this is kind of a big deal because employers who had people who um, were uh, had a qualifying event prior to April 1 going back 18 months and didn't elect COBRA or elected it and let it lapse, have to get a new COBRA election notice, have to be given another opportunity to elect COBRA all over again, and then they will get six months, up to six months of free coverage. It won't, um, their maximum period of COBRA coverage still applies. So they don't get longer than 18 months, but if they still have some of their 18 months left, that will be covered, um, subsidized, that COBRA coverage will be subsidized. We'll talk about that more, and I've got some specific examples of that coming up. So here's the extended election period that I was just referring to. Individuals who experienced a qualifying event prior to April 1, whose maximum period of COBRA coverage has not yet ended, they're still within the uh, 18 months of um, uh, 18 months since their qualifying event date, and who either did not elect COBRA or allowed their COBRA coverage to lapse will have a new opportunity to elect COBRA and take advantage of the subsidy. In this case, uh, with regard to the new election, their coverage will be prospective only. So it will start April 1, 2021. They don't get to go back in time and fill in the gaps. It also will not extend beyond the length of their maximum COBRA coverage period um, that they had when they were originally eligible. So for termination or reduction in hours, it's 18 months. They don't get more than 18 months. And um, as we'll talk about when we get to the notices, the plan administrator, basically the employer, must provide a revised COBRA election notice within 60 days of April 1 or by the May 31. Um, and AEIs then have 60 days to elect COBRA after they receive that notice. The DOL released new model notices and FAQs on April 7. So these are now available and will be available to our audience. Um, I got another question. Just to confirm, involuntary termination is not connected to COVID. If a person is terminated due to poor performance and the company is doing fine under COVID, that person is still eligible for the subsidy. Correct. Yes, that is correct. So it's not limited to um, COVID. It's not limited. It just has to be an involuntary termination. So if it's poor performance, absenteeism, whatever, you, uh, they are still eligible for the subsidy. The usual COBRA proviso that you don't have to offer them COBRA if they were terminated for gross misconduct um, still applies. You don't have to offer them the subsidy if, you were if they were terminated for gross misconduct. But as I always advise employers, proving gross misconduct, if it's challenged in court, can be very, very difficult. Even a situation you might think sounds like gross misconduct might not be viewed as such by the courts. So if you're intending to terminate someone for that reason, uh, I would get legal advice before you do so, or not terminate them, but uh, fail to offer them COBRA for that reason, I would get legal advice before you do so. Okay, so here's some subsidies on how we figure out who qualifies as an AEI. So Alpha Corporation is located in Pasadena. In 2020, Alpha had 50 employees, therefore Alpha is subject to COBRA. Alpha offers full-time employees a fully insured health plan. 
During 2020, Taylor works full-time for Alpha as a bookkeeper. Taylor elected and is covered by the health plan. In November 2020, number one, Taylor quits. Taylor walks into the office one day, says, I don't like this job. I don't want to do it anymore. I quit. Taylor is offered COBRA, elects COBRA, and is currently on COBRA. Taylor is not an AEI. Taylor is not eligible for the subsidy because it was a voluntary termination, not an involuntary termination. Uh, scenario two, Taylor is terminated for cause. Taylor, for example, has excessive absenteeism. Taylor is terminated. Taylor is offered COBRA, elects COBRA, and is currently on COBRA. Taylor is eligible for the subsidy. Number three, Taylor is terminated for cause. Taylor is offered COBRA, elected COBRA, and then let the COBRA coverage lapse at the end of January. Taylor will get a new COBRA election form, giving her another opportunity to elect COBRA effective April 1, 2021, and that coverage uh, will be uh, subsidized, assuming um, one of the other circumstances doesn't exist to cut her off from COBRA. Uh, number four, Taylor is laid off because Alpha's business is down due to COVID-19. Taylor is offered COBRA but did not elect COBRA. Again, Taylor will be given another opportunity to elect COBRA prospectively um, and uh, it will be subsidized. Who is not eligible for the subsidy? You are not eligible for the subsidy as of the first date that the individual is eligible for coverage under any other group health plan or Medicare. So um, we believe, for example, this would mean if, you're, if you were eligible for your spouse's plan, although we're looking for guidance to confirm that. But let's say you, someone, you terminate someone, they go out and get another job and become eligible for coverage under that other employer's plan, they would not be eligible for the subsidy anymore. Or they hit 65 and become eligible for Medicare, they would not be eligible for the subsidy anymore. Now, this other group coverage uh, cannot consist of uh, coverage consisting only of accepted benefits, such as a vision-only or a dental-only plan. If all they're being offered is vision and dental, that doesn't cut off the subsidy. Or if the only coverage they're being offered is a health FSA or coverage under a qualified small employment health reimbursement arrangement, a QSERA, that won't cut off the coverage. Also, they are not eligible for the subsidy as soon as their maximum COBRA coverage uh, term ends. So if someone was only entitled to 18 months of COBRA, once the 18 month clock runs, if it were to run in the middle of April through September, then the COBRA subsidy would end. If an AEI becomes ineligible for the subsidy because the AEI becomes eligible for other coverage or Medicare, there's a provision in ARPA that says that AEI must notify the group health plan of their ineligibility. Their failure to notify the group health plan could lead to an IRS penalty. And um, we, uh, the Department of Labor is specifically instruction, instructed within ARPA to uh, provide some terms and conditions that uh, would help explain to AEIs um, how they would provide that notice to employers. Types of coverage eligible for the subsidy. So this was a question I got early on quite a bit. So it's all group health plans subject to COBRA whether they're subject to COBRA under ERISA, the Internal Revenue Code, or the Public Health Service Act, or coverage under a state program that provides comparable continuation coverage. In other words, state mini COBRA laws. Now I wanna break this down a little bit. Um, 
because it also applies to group health plans subject to the Public Health Service Act, I interpret that to mean that it includes state and local government plans, which are subject to PHSA. Um, I actually just saw recently someone suggested that state and local government plans uh, don't have to do this. It's voluntary. That's not my interpretation, but let's see what the regulators say. Um, this presumably also includes dental, vision, and health reimbursement arrangements. And I will tell you back in the ARA days, it did include dental, vision, and health reimbursement arrangements using the same language that we're relying on in ARPA. Um, so I think that's a pretty good sign that dental and vision will be included. Uh, but it specifically does not include health flexible spending arrangements. Does the subsidy apply to Cal Cobra or other state mini Cobra laws? It applies to anyone entitled to continuation coverage under a comparable state program. Um, that's the same language they used back in the days of ARA, but we are still waiting for guidance on what exactly they mean by that in this context. My read on the situation is I suspect it will apply to Cal Cobra's uh, 2 to 19 coverage provision. So if you're an employer who's not subject to Cobra because you have under 20 employees and you offer a fully insured plan, you offer continuation benefits to your employees under Cal Cobra under the 2 to 19 portion of Cal Cobra. I suspect we will find that that is considered comparable. Um, I'm less certain about the second part of CalCobra, which provides additional uh, continuation benefits to those who exhaust their federal COBRA. So let's see what um, the regulators say. And in fact, um, and re reading lots and lots of uh, uh, pundits on this topic, it seems like that's the position that most people are taking. That's a kind of a wait and see attitude. So can, when can the subsidy end early? Uh, subsidy coverage is generally good to up to six months, April 1 through September 30th, but it will end early if the AEI becomes coverage eligible for Medicare or coverage under another group health plan or their maximum continuation coverage period ends prior to that date. Okay, here's the big question. Um, if the AEI does not pay the COBRA premium, who is responsible for payment? So if it's a multi-employer plan, the plan pays. If the plan is subject to COBRA under either ERISA, the Internal Revenue Code, or the Public Health Service Act, or the plan is self-funded, the employer pays the subsidy. If none of those circumstances apply, then the insurer pays the subsidy. So those circumstances that don't apply would generally be the mini COBRA laws or um, a church plan. Those are the examples we tend to see come up most often. If they decide, for example, that Cal COBRA, the 2 to 19 portion of it, is subject to the subsidy, the insurance company would be uh, responsible for absorbing the premium cost in that case. Um, so big news is for employers, if you have a self-funded plan, whether it's a small group or a large group, if it is self-funded um, and it is subject to COBRA under ERISA, the Internal Revenue Code, or the Public Health Service Act, whether self-funded or fully insured, um, then the employer has to pay the subsidy. Now, interestingly, one point to keep in mind is, let's say the subsidy starts April 1. Let's say you've got someone who's on COBRA and who has gone ahead and paid their April 1 premium in advance, even though that premium we now know will be subsidized. In that case, the uh, party who's responsible for absorbing the cost, either the employer or the insurance company, 
must um, reimburse the AEI in that case within 60 days. Um, so let's say you're fully insured, you're the employer, you're responsible for the subsidy. What this would mean here, the mechanics as we think they'll play out, is that the employer will cut the check for the COBRA qualified beneficiaries to the insurance company, and then later on will get a tax credit. Or if you're a self-funded plan, you simply won't get that money coming in um, from the COBRA qualified beneficiaries to keep funding your plan, but you will be able to um, uh, collect the amount that you would have received on a monthly basis through a tax credit mechanism. So if the employer, the insurer, or the plan is obligated to cover the COBRA costs for the AEIs, how they get that money back from the federal government, and they will get it all back dollar for dollar from the federal government, is by claiming a tax credit against their quarterly payroll tax liability, specifically their Medicare tax liability but a refund will be available to adjust to make certain that they um, get the right amounts. Having said all of that, I do need to tell you that there are restrictions on double dipping. So for example, if the employer is receiving a tax credit for qualified health plan expenses because the employer is voluntarily paying paid sick leave benefits under the family's first law, the employer cannot take a credit under this provision of ARPA for the same amount of money. So you only get the tax credit once. You can't take it multiple times under multiple areas of the law. Um, the IRS has been instructed to issue guidance on the mechanics of how this process works. The statute even outlines specific areas they want to see um, addressed. So we don't know all of the mechanics. We just know the general overview of how the employer will get reimbursed but um, how they will actually claim it and so forth hasn't yet um, been announced to us. Are there new notice requirements? Yes, there are new notice requirements. So employers are going to have to modify their existing COBRA election forms. And you can do this either by modifying the body of the existing COBRA election form or attaching an addendum to the COBRA election form. So first off, you're going to have to modify your existing COBRA election form so that when you send out um, uh, a COBRA election form to someone who's about to have a qualifying event during the subsidy period between April and September, that they will have notice of how the subsidy works. You will also have to modify your existing COBRA election form to explain how the subsidy works if someone has already had a qualifying event, um, they're still on COBRA and suddenly now that COBRA coverage is going to be subsidized. That notice must go out by May 31. There's a, also a plan enrollment, open enrollment option uh, or plan enrollment option change offer. That also has to be disclosed in your uh, COBRA election notice. So those are changes you need to make to your COBRA election notice. In addition to that, there's going to be a new notice that you're um, a, a whole new requirement under COBRA. Um, and that is you're going to have to send out a notice prior to a subsidy ending. So let's say someone's subsidy is due to end September 30th, sometime between 45 and 15 days prior to the end of that subsidy, you're going to have to send them a notice explaining to them that the subsidy is going to end and what their options might be. These new notices, as I mentioned before, were provided by the DOL along with some FAQs on April 7th. We will provide these model notices as an additional handout for all webinar attendees and as show notes for the podcast audience. Um, 
but I should talk about, um, but I should say, you know, this is something you're going to want to start working with your COBRA administrator on, or if your internal staff on to talk about what the, what you anticipate is going to start happening as soon as those model notices come out. You know, do you have all the records? Do you need to recreate some records? Um, if you're working with a COBRA administrator, are they going to charge extra for this process? All those kinds of details need to work out. So you don't have to necessarily wait till April 10 or April 25 until uh, you get those notices. You can start working on your plan of action and your action items now. And by the way, I've got another question here and I'm running a little long. So I just, it was it has to do with the double dip. It, that's a very good question that you um, asked about. How does the double dip work when um, some of the, uh, tax relief you're requesting is for active employees and some are on COBRA. Um, we don't really know the mechanics of some of this yet. I'm hoping that, cause that is a legitimate question. I think when they're talking about double dip, I think what they're referring to is like on an individual by individual basis. If for some reason, the, uh, the expenses that you're claiming for Joe fell into two different buckets, you couldn't request a tax credit um, under both buckets for Joe. Um, I think that's their their point in all of this, um, and it's uh, it's not that if you claim the credit under for the Cobra subsidies, you can't also claim a credit for the um, under the uh, paid leave provisions. But we have to wait till we get more information on that to absolutely confirm that. In the meantime, you can talk to your tax advisor to see if they have any um, more up to date information. But I haven't seen any. Yeah, I haven't seen anything either. I actually asked my tax preparer about this too. Is they haven't? They're waiting as, uh, for information as well. Uh, I wasn't going to walk through this, but this is just um, the content of the notices. This is what the statute specifically says must be included in the notices, just to give you some idea. Um, they'll probably flesh out these terms when they issue the guidance and the model language. Um, so here's an example of um, how the notices work. Let's say Kelly was terminated for cause and Kelly's COBRA continuation coverage would have started on November 1, 2019, but Kelly did not elect it. Because Kelly has not exhausted the 18-month maximum COBRA continuation period, Kelly won't exhaust that until the end of April. Kelly must be offered the, offered the opportunity to enroll effective April 1, and receive one month of subsidized COBRA coverage, so long as Kelly is not eligible for other group coverage or Medicare. So this gives an example of uh, how far back um, the need to send out those um, notice new COBRA election forms about giving people another bite at the apple might go. It might go as far back as uh, November 2019. Um, in this case, Kelly will receive an updated COBRA election notice, letting Kelly know that he can sign up for coverage for April, um, and that, that uh, his, um, and then once that subsidy, that one month subsidy ends, he's going to have to receive another notice telling him that the subsidy ends. So you can count so that, backwards. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, you can count backwards, and I think, isn't that the, the, the longest period they can go back is actually to counting the number of months? Um, is November because I'm trying to think is there a cutoff that's date? That's what we're thinking. Yeah, yeah yes, well, the way that's the 18 yeah, months. That's that's what I thought too. I just want to make sure and just let people know that that looks like at this point it looks like 11-119 is as far back as you have to go. Anything that's so basically anything that happened 11-119 or later is what you have to be focusing on as far as you know what you have to do and how far back you have to go for those for those time periods. For personal reasons, Alex reduces hours worked starting January 1, 2021. 
This results in a loss of coverage effective January 1, 2021, a COBRA qualifying event. Alex elects COBRA effective April 1, 2021. Alex is entitled to six months of subsidized coverage so long as Alex is not eligible for other co group coverage or Medicare. So this references the fact that we think that for reduction in hours, it doesn't have to be involuntary, that a voluntary reduction in hours could result in subsidized coverage. Um, new facts, Cobra's, uh, Alex's COBRA qualifying event takes, uh, takes effect on April 1, 2021. Basically the same result there. And I, used, I changed up the example because it's possible that a person like Alex, under the circumstances, who might have been hesitant to cut back on hours because of the loss of salary plus the cost of COBRA, might rethink that from April through September if the COBRA coverage is going to be subsidized. Um, new facts, before receiving the new COBRA notice, Alex goes ahead and pays the April premium for the fully insured coverage. In that case, the employer has to reimburse Alex within 60 days. Um, also, Alex qualify, uh, new facts, Alex qualifying event day was January 1, 2021. Alex pays the COBRA premium, then stops. Alex will receive an updated COBRA election notice under the ARPA provisions. Alex can restart COBRA effective April 1, 2021, and it will then be subsidized for the next six months. And this is pulling together the outbreak period timeframe rules that I was talking about at the beginning and the COBRA subsidies. What happens to that gap in coverage that Alex has February through March for which she did not pay premium? Well, if Alex wants to, because she's got additional time under the outbreak period, she can go back now and pay that premium and get coverage for February through March. Or she could just let that gap sit there and not get coverage for those months, which she might choose to do if she didn't have any claims. So she would therefore have a gap in coverage and still be eligible for COBRA and still be eligible for the subsidy effective April 1. None of this, however, affects the maximum time she has for COBRA. It's still 18 months from January 1, 2021. And this is exactly why I wanted you to, to go over this one, because I wanted to see, I wanted people to understand how complicated this can get because of the two different laws here. We're talking about this, this under ARPA and also the outbreak period and how those kind of interact. Um, and I also wanted to mention what she was talking about, what Marilyn was mentioning. This really... It really smells a little bit of a, about adverse selection. So in other words, they can only pay for the, the months in which they um, have claims. <laughs> so I wanted to, for self-funded employers, I just want to make sure you were aware of this. This does reek of, of, of some adverse selection um, opportunities here for people um, determining whether or not to elect COBRA during that time period. So because they're given the opportunity under this law. So I just wanted, that's why I wanted you to go through this particular scenario, uh, Marilyn. And by the way, there is funding for outreach. So the government will be letting people know about how these subsidies work. So word will be getting out. I did want to add the plan enrollment option. This is an employer option. The employer does not have to do this, but this is a, in a situation, let's say you're an employer and you offer both a PPO option and an HMO option. When you're sending out these COBRA election notices saying to people, oh, you're now entitled to subsidized coverage, you can also let them know that you are going to allow them to change their plan options. So if they were previously on the PPO, maybe they can change down to the HMO now if they decide that's a better option for them. In order to change options, the option they change to can has to be the same cost or less than the one that they're currently in, and it has to be available to all similarly situated individuals. 
Um, and so the employer, when they send out those modified COBRA election notices, will also have to explain the, uh, this uh, plan enrollment option and then give AEIs 90 days to make the change. So just a few more details about the COBRA subsidies. Um, I, let's see, the reimbursement I did mention, ineligibility. Um, remember, as I mentioned, also the participant must notify the group health plan if they're ineligible for the subsidy. Uh, the subsidy is not included in the gross income of the AEI. I did want to mention if any of you have severance arrangements where you pay for all or part of health plan coverage or COBRA coverage for a period of time. Back in the ARA days, one of the things the IRS talked about quite a bit in their guidance was how these types of severance arrangements can impact the COBRA subsidy. So there might be some design choices that you want to make to your severance policies in light of the potential guidance that we might expect coming out. I talked about the limits on double dipping and I talked about outreach. So we've covered all of that. Should we expect additional guidance? Yes. <laughs> thank, thank goodness, right? We better get some extra some guidance here soon. And that's all I need to say on that one. <laughs> um, actually, I did kind of go through this example, but I'll, I'll, I'll just make it quick on the timeframe extensions and the COBRA subsidies. Taylor was involuntarily terminated effective uh, July or November 30, 2020, Taylor's health coverage ended at the same time. Taylor was offered COBRA and under typical COBRA has 60 days to elect or until January 30th, 2021. Taylor did not elect COBRA and is, is not currently eligible for other group coverage. Under the timeframe extensions, Taylor has until January 30th, 2022 to elect COBRA. Under the ARPA COBRA subsidies, Taylor is going to be provided with a new COBRA election notice explaining how the COBRA subsidies work and the extended election period, the other bite at the apple. Taylor will have 60 days from that notice to elect COBRA effective April 1, and then Taylor can get six months of subsidized COBRA through the end of September. Taylor's maximum period of COBRA coverage is 18 months through May 31, 2022. But remember, Taylor will have a gap in the COBRA coverage unless Taylor goes back and makes up those premium payments, which Taylor has one year to do. Just to let you know, they didn't issue much in the way of guidance on penalties, but that's probably because there are pre-existing penalties in ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code. So the bottom line is, if you don't send out proper notices or you don't properly comply with the law, there are potential penalties under both ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code. Um, and of course, if you don't comply, that can also lead to participant complaints, which can lead to audits from the Department of Labor as well as potential lawsuits. So make sure that you follow the rules. Okay, uh, I'm going to speed this up a little bit faster than I anticipated because I know we're running a little bit long here. Um, I want to talk about the Marketplace Advanced Premium Tax Credits. Um, it's just so that you know, they are expanding these. You probably heard about this in the news these uh, considerably. So I'm just going to walk through these real quickly. Um, this is the federal guidance here um, on, based on the federal poverty line, excuse me. Uh, and they start at 150% and they go up to 400 and above. And you'll see what they were initially in the middle column and on the far right is the final. So you'll see that starting with 150 to 200%, there is additional uh, funds available here for subsidies. Now, let me break this down for you when we will a little bit better. Um, the premiums after these new savings uh, will decrease on average by what they're saying approximately $50 per person per month or $85 per policy per month. Four out of five enrollees will be able to find a health plan for $10 or less per month after the premium tax credits now 
uh, and over 50% will be able to find a silver plan for $10 or less. Wait till we get to California on this, by the way. Uh, no one will have to pay more than 8.5% of their household income towards the cost of a benchmark plan um, or a less expensive plan. So that's the cutoff is 8.5% will be the maximum that anyone will have to pay under federal rule. Here in California, uh, I actually pulled quotes from a covered California press release that was dated uh, March 18th uh, on this new provision. And of course, they're very excited at covered California to have all these new funds available because more people will enroll. And so they have extended that coverage out through uh, May. Um, and they're estimating 3 million Californians are among the 25 million Americans who will benefit from these additional premium subsidies. So they're estimating 1.2 million uninsured Californians will now be eligible, um, as well as 430,000 people currently insured off, off of the exchange that could come now into the exchange. They didn't qualify for uh, funding and subsidies before, but now will qualify for financial help. So if you know anybody um, who's in that position, they're saying get them on board with the exchanges because they'll get more premium assistance available to them at this time. So uh, most of the people, according to California, currently enrolled customers um, will see an average of $119 per household in monthly premium savings. It's higher than the federal start uh, that will automatically start in May. And Covered California, they have a detailed roadmap with three strategies that include um, how this is going to work. Um, they said that basically consumers who earn less than $32,000 a year for an individual will be able to either get a benchmark silver plan for between $50 and $60 per month. Yes, that's total cost to them after the subsidy and virtually will be able to get a bronze plan for $1 per month. So it's always been inexpensive under the subsidies. Now it's even much more obviously affordable. However, other people are going to be paying for that. So keep that in mind. Dorothy, um, can I add a comment there? Uh -huh, absolutely. I, I got a question about a week or so ago um, about an employee who wanted to drop the employer coverage and move over to covered California during the open enrollment period. Reading between the lines, I think they were hearing about this um, very low cost coverage and thinking they could do better on covered California than with the employer plan where they had to contribute something. But there's nothing in this, as far as I know, that would change the rules that if the employer Correct. is offering you affordable coverage, you're, you would not be eligible for um, the premium tax credit. Yes. So kind of getting back to your adverse selection comment, there are going to be people that are going to be looking at what are their various options um, to save some money here, but mm -hmm. there are still some pre-existing rules that they're going to have to keep in mind. Yeah, and I was going to mention that at the end, so thank you for bringing that up. That's it's an important point to make. So if they have other coverage available to them, they're probably not going to be able to qualify for those subsidies, same as before. So you want to keep in mind the rules still remain the same, as Marilyn said. Um, but you know, more people that are insured off the exchange will now, be, they're talking about an individual plan. Someone's not, not on a group plan, but on an individual plan that, you know, they have um, Anthem Direct or Blue Shield Direct or whoever they have direct. And now can, they can now move on to Covered California during this open enrollment period uh, and won't have to pay more than 8.5% of their income on health premiums. So that's, that's the important point that you need to take away from this. Um, yeah, the we don't want people moving from a group plan because they're going to get, they will not allow uh, them to get the subsidies, okay? Uh, that's not a qualifying event to receive those subsidies. So if an individual has income of 51000 per year, um, currently pay an average of $1,100 per month for coverage, and under this, their premium is going to drop to an average of $508 down from 1100 uh, a savings of nearly 600 per month uh, and a total of nearly $12,000 between this May and the end of 2022. So that's significant savings for people that are in the individual plan market. Um, I want to talk about some other things too. Marilyn, did you want to say anything else about Covered California before I move on? Or are we good? 
I'm going to assume we're good. <laughs> That's great. I was muted. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I figured you were. Okay. So I just want to talk briefly about this because we need to get wrapped up here. Um, there is still, uh, additional funds available for small businesses um, under a credit initiative, and that's $10 billion in additional assistance for small businesses. So keep that in mind, um, particularly for fewer employees that have fewer than 10 employees and um, independent contractors and sole proprietors. There's additional funds available there. Uh, they've made some modifications to PPP loans. There's an additional $7.25 billion there to fund new loans, okay? Uh, and they have some interesting information. So I would definitely, if you're interested in filing for PPP, uh, I would talk to your you know, uh, accountant first uh, before you do that. But those are, there are additional funds available. And I also want to mention, because we do have a couple of restaurants as clients, um, that there is new support for restaurants under this Restaurant Revitalization Fund. And SBA will be administering grants um, on or after 60 days of the enactment, $28.6 billion available for grants. But you know they have to be smaller restaurants. They can't be huge. But they're also going to apply to things like food stands, food trucks, um, caterers, saloons, um, you know, taverns, bars, lounges, you know, that sort of thing, tasting rooms, tap rooms, things that weren't necessarily covered uh, in some assistance before can get some additional assistance now. So they're really looking to help those really small single person entities and, and really small uh, entities with more than 20 locations are not eligible. They don't want to have happen what happened in the first round of PPP loans where these huge companies with uh, restaurants all over the country were taking all the funds and then the smaller people, smaller organizations couldn't get them. Publicly traded companies are not eligible. Okay, so keep that in mind as well. But there are additional funds available for restaurants now. Um, there's additional pandemic unemployment assistance available, which I'm sure you guys have been hearing about in the news. Um, and that expires September 6th, and it increases the number of eligible weeks from 50 weeks to 79 weeks. And for all others, it, uh, 24 weeks goes to 53 weeks or $300 per week. Okay, so there are these additional uh, unemployment benefits available. First 10200 in unemployment will not be included in your gross income for taxpayers um, with gross incomes of less than $150,000. So those are some big changes there. I'm going to turn this over to Marilyn so she can talk more about the FSAs and then get into the, um, into the new leave provisions, which I think a lot of people are hanging on here for. But we need to move pretty rapidly, Marilyn. I can make this one quick. <laughs> For those of you who offer dependent care spending accounts, however you call it, the DCAP, the dependent care, flexible spending account, whatever, you probably know that there's a limit to the amount that can be contributed to the DCAP, and it's, it's a statutory limit set at $5,000. For this year and this year only, they are increasing that to $10,500. Um, you can adopt this change retroactively, um, uh, but you do have to um, memorialize it through a written cafeteria plan amendment. Um, you don't have to adopt it if you're an employer, but you can adopt it. And um, you don't have to do it for the full 10,000. You could do it for a lesser amount. But that's my summary of the dependent care FSA changes. Tax credit on paid leave. So um, many of you will be aware that um, under the Families First Law, if you were uh, way back that was passed March 18 of 2020, there were two mandatory paid leave provisions in that, um, mandatory paid sick leave and a mandatory paid extension of FMLA. Those two mandates ended December 30, 2020. The Consolidated Appropriations Act, which was, which was signed on December 27th, said to employers, okay, the mandate's over, but if you want to voluntarily provide paid sick leave benefits under the terms and conditions set forth in Families First, through March 30th, 31, you'll get a tax credit for it. Along comes ARPA and it says, okay, 
if you want to provide paid leave benefits under the same terms and conditions set out in Family First, it's voluntary and will give you a tax credit through September 30th. But when they did that, they also made some changes to the paid leave provisions under, or to the paid leave provisions under Families First. So um, if you do this, if you voluntarily extend it through September 30th, you can qualify for a tax credit um, against your payroll taxes. You're not required to. Um, the time period for this runs from April 1 through September 30th. And then they've made a few additional changes to the terms and conditions. They've changed up the bases for the leave. They've changed up the maximum amounts and so forth. So uh, the last I looked a couple of days ago, the IRS had not yet updated their FAQs, but they were in the process of doing so. So that's something to um, watch for if you're considering extending that benefit. Just remember, limits on, yet again, limits on double dipping. You can't, yes. <laughs> right, they one don't want you taking the credit twice. I want to get into, and I want to give you time for this because this is one people are waiting for because it's, uh, obviously it's new. So the, the paid leave provisions under the federal, under federal law are voluntary, not mandatory. They're voluntary, but if you do them, you get a tax credit. So along comes from the, the state of California and Governor Newsom signed SB 95, which is California's new supplemental paid sick leave policy. California had passed a sick leave bill last year, AB 1867. It also ended December 31, along with Families First. Um, so, in the, so now they've passed a new bill and it's different from, um, it's got some things in common with AB 1867, but it's different in other ways. AB 1867, for example, applied to employers with 500 or more employees. This new bill applies to employers with more than 25 employees. Um, it's retroactive. So let's say someone went out on leave in January for one of the qualifying reasons under SB 95, they can request uh, paid leave benefits going back in time from their employer. There's a process from doing so. So um, the employees are entitled to up to 80 hours and there are formulas for figuring that out if someone's not a full-time worker, but a part-time worker. Um, and these hours are in addition to any hours that might be available to them under your existing paid sick leave policy, which is required, which you are required to have under the Healthy Workplaces, Healthy Families Act. Um, there are also formulas for figuring out the rate of pay for non-exempt and exempt workers. There is a notice requirement. The poster has already been issued and is available to you. There is a pay stub requirement like there was under AB 1867. And there are also a set of um, uh, FAQs available. The FAQs are very helpful. Um, Dorothy, if I can suggest that we provide a link to the FAQs and the follow-up email, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, I was gonna include the link for the FAQs as well as the poster. Perfect, okay. Thanks so much, Marilyn, for being here once again as our guest and for being on this podcast for this special edition. Our audience really loves hearing from you. As you know, we keep asking you to come back and we do really appreciate you. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Dorothy, for those very kind words. And I do enjoy working with you on these podcasts and I enjoy speaking to your um, audience. So if our audience wants to reach out to you, how can they do that? Well, they can either reach me by email or by phone. My email address is marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com and my phone number is 310-989-0993. 
Thanks, Marilyn, and to all of you out there, please stay safe and stay healthy. And when it's your turn, we do hope that you will get vaccinated so that we can reach this quote-unquote herd immunity so we can all get together and possibly do these things in person again one day soon. We hope you found this special edition podcast informative. Please see our show notes for more information. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3, toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.